My subject this morning goes to the, ten years I, the last 10 years I have spent working for a law firm, Witnesses for the Defense. Last week, we saw the beginning of an encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders, an encounter that followed him healing a man who had been lame for 38 years and healing him at the pool of Bethesda. They were very upset with Jesus that he healed the man on the Sabbath. They were very upset not only that he healed the man on the Sabbath, but that then he instructed the man to take up his mat and do what they considered work on the Sabbath. They presented themselves, even though this wasn't a formal court, according to Jewish tradition and law, they presented themselves to Jesus as judges, bringing accusations. And Jesus turned it around, if you recall from last week, and made it clear to them, no, no, let's be clear, I'm your judge, assigned by God the Father. And the two points I made last week was that God is always working and still working today. Don't ever have any doubt whether God is still alive and still working and moving in the lives of his people and in everyone's lives. And the second point I made last week was that Jesus is the only way. It's only through him that we can have eternal life. This interaction continues, and the flavor of what we're going to read today is that of a trial, and that flavor and feel intensifies. So in typical courtroom fashion, Jesus calls his witnesses. So let's get into this. John chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse number 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who, has, who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. There are, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come to, in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Witnesses for the defense. In the Old Testament, various crimes, especially capital crimes, were tried in a very formal way. The people would gather in the city gate and in the presence of whatever judges were available in the land. The penalty, especially death penalty, could only be imposed 
not just because an accusation was made, but in the presence of two verified witnesses that they would testify. Their testimony had to be 100% accurate and 100% in agreement with each other. Given, giving a true and accurate, and accurate witness was very important to Israel. So important that one of the Ten Commandments of all the things that it talks about, about not stealing and not killing, is about not bearing false witness. Bearing a false witness would, would subject yourself to various penalties, which could include death. Jesus stood here accused of violating God's law regarding the Sabbath. The language of this text that, we're, that we just read is bathed in legal terminology that was specific to the people of Israel in the first century. It is important that we understand this context, or we can easily come off track and get confused about the statements that were made, beginning with verse 31, where he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying you can't trust his word, because there are too many other places in the Gospels where he says you need to believe what I say. Jesus repeatedly encouraged people to trust and follow the words he said throughout the Gospels, and we'll see that throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. And Jesus often chastised his disciples for not following or understanding the words he said. What Jesus is saying here, he's following Jewish tradition and, is, and the law of Israel, that the accusing leaders in the context was basically saying he needed witnesses in order to prove his case before them. He's basically adhering to the Old Testament way of doing courts and saying, okay, I'm going to obey what the law says, and I'm not going to testify or give my own testimony as being proof. Similarly, the accusations being made about him had the same standard. They, too, would have to present witnesses that his claim was false. And this is the good news for us because in this passage, Jesus calls witnesses. And I'm going to outline five witnesses that he calls. And the first witness he calls is John the Baptist. Verse 32 says that John the Baptist was sent to proclaim and bear truth. He comments that the leaders sent investigators to him to find out what was going on with him, that John bore witness to the truth. Verse 35 says that John was a lamp that burned and gave light. And he mentions that while John the Baptist was preaching, that they actually enjoyed having him around, which made sense. Israel hadn't had a prophet come into Israel for over 400 years. So it made sense that he caused the national stir. He represented the potential restoration of an office that had been gone for centuries. And they liked it. But the gospel is also clear from the very beginning that we read in chapter 1, verse number 7. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John the Baptist was, was his primary witness, the forerunner for Jesus in the world at this time. He declared that people needed to repent. He declared that people needed to prepare the way of the Lord. And we need to be the same witnesses today. If there's anything that 
our world has confused about coming to Jesus is most people will admit they've made mistakes. Most people will admit that they're not perfect. If people are not in that category, if they've become that arrogant, then there's somebody who needs prayer because you're not going to reach them. But coming to Jesus is, yes, about embracing him as Lord, about accepting his sacrifice. It's also about that wonderful word that even in church most people don't want to talk about. It's repentance. We need to repent before Jesus. And repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's not just acknowledging you make mistakes. It's walking away from them, walking away from the situations, turning around and going in the opposite direction, leaving behind and recategorizing what was once thought of as pleasure and joy. It's now ugly and sin. And repentance is moving away from that. And that's what John the Baptist came into Israel to proclaim, the need to repent. He came to prepare people to understand that they need Jesus. And church, we need to prepare people for the fact that they need Jesus. That they need a savior. People need to turn from their sins. Not just be sorry that they happened. And embrace a love relationship with Jesus Christ as savior and as Lord, as Redeemer, and as the boss. And then we need to declare, going back to John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him when he was being baptized. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed in Israel. Our world desperately today needs this revelation. Behold, the Lamb of God is the only one who can take away your sins. He's the only one who can cover. It's his blood and his blood alone. No other practice, no other philosophy, no other thought process, nothing else but the blood of Jesus, like we sang last week. So the first witness that Jesus called was John the Baptist. The second one was miracles. Verse 36 and the beginning of verse 37 read, I have testimony weightier than John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me and that the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. If you recall from all the miracles we've seen beginning with the water turned to wine at the wedding in Cana. John goes to great lengths that often doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. Their main purpose, and I believe today, the main purpose of these signs or miracles is not so that we could go and step back and go, wow. Yeah, we might have that feeling. We might have that sense, but that's not their purpose. God moving in our midst is not to dazzle us. The main purpose is to point us to someone, that we will get a clearer revelation of who Jesus is. They should point us to Jesus, not to the vessel that God is using, not to the one who God happens to be moving through, but they should be pointing us to Jesus. Biblical miracles aren't designed to prove God's existence because God exists anyway. He is who he is. Hebrews chapter 11 says, they, he who comes to God must believe that he is. 
and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. I've heard many people and, and interacted with many people over the course of my life who say, well, I need God to prove to me he's there. Well, he, one, he already has. You're here. And this world is here. But if you think that God is losing sleep at night and staying up all night trying to figure out how to prove something to you, you might as well go back to sleep. God has no ego problem. He's not concerned about that. He has proven his existence. And it's for us to understand that he already does exist. These miracles are to point us to a unique revelation. They should point us to Jesus. Miracles authenticate the messenger. Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a great teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Someone telling me that they know someone who can perform miracles doesn't impress me. I've known many Christian leaders, and what they advertise, what they market about their ministry is the miracles that you will see. I'm sorry, bless you. What I will be more concerned about than the miracles you perform than the lives that are changed. I will be more focused on when you preach, does what you preach and teach line up with the word of God? Doesn't matter how many people walk up out of a wheelchair, how many people can walk into eternal life based on a biblical perspective of what the Bible says. Now, I look forward to God performing miraculous works in our day because I believe they're still for today. But they need to line up with the word of God. And they need to line up our lives with the word as well. Jesus made it clear the miracles he performed were corroborating witnesses of his relationship with God and of whom had given him a plan and a purpose. So if you won't believe Jesus' words... He's now pointing to his works. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He opened blind eyes. Like at the pool of Bethesda, he made the lame walk. But he performed other miracles as well that were just as astonishing in Jesus' day. He loved the marginalized. He ate with sinners, was even their friend. He respected and established the higher place of women, because in that culture, women did not have a voice, did not have a place of any kind publicly. Yet Jesus was surrounded continually throughout the gospel by women. That was him performing what would have been in the eyes of many of the leaders a miracle. The needs of people were more important to him than the maintenance of traditions. And we give God praise for that. Mighty works indeed, yes. Now you may or may not be used by God to open blind eyes and see lame people walk. But you can love like Jesus loved. You can minister to people like he did. You can go against trends that only say certain groups of people are important, and you can love everybody equally. And besides, Paul made it clear in that passage that is read at every wedding I officiate at, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse number one, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy 
and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not love, I gain nothing. Every wedding I've ever done, that passage has been read. And and the next four verses as well. It's always amazed me about that passage because it would make no sense to put forth conditions like that if I have this but not that, if that wasn't possible. It would make no sense to say, well, if I could fly, I wouldn't fly there. But I can't fly. So the analogy makes no sense. Yet Paul is staying here, if I can speak with tongues of men and angels, but have not love. So that must be possible. If I can speak with prophecy, but have not love, that must be possible. If I have faith enough to move mountains, faith in God that I can say the mountains move, but have not love, that analogy only makes sense if it's possible to speak with tongues and not have love, to speak with prophecy and not have love, to give to the poor and not have love, to be a martyr for Jesus and not have love. Without his love in our lives, Paul was clear in verse, uh, the end of verse 4, I gain nothing. That's a miracle God works in our lives. Not just the things that we do, but the motivation we do them from. We help people because we love people. We minister to those who aren't the most pleasant in our lives. Anybody got unpleasant people in your lives? Please don't look to the left or right. But we love them. And let's be clear, there are some people in our lives who are extremely unlovable. And yet that love flows freely. Church, that's a miracle. That only God can ring out true in our hearts. Without his love, we gain nothing. And God's love is miraculous. God's love is stirring. So the second witness was miracles. The third witness was God the Father himself. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water and at that moment heaven was opened up and we, he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The father drew attention to who Jesus was, his very identity. There's a, a popular bumper sticker. It was more popular when I was younger, but I've still seen it from time to time. Now, I understand the sentiment behind it, but I'm going to pick on it right now. It says, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Again, I understand the sentiment, but sorry, God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. God's word doesn't require a verification of my faith to be true. God's word settles the issue. My belief doesn't validate Jesus. The Father did that a long time ago. My faith in Jesus just demonstrates that I'm not insane. I have the sense to be able to put my faith in the creator, in the one true son of God. That's God the Father bearing witness to his son. The Jewish leaders were so focused 
on being loyal and faithful to God that they missed so much of what he wanted to impart in their lives, which brings us to the next witness, the scriptures. Verses 39 and 40, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I want to be clear and balanced here because it's easy to kind of get off the track. Studying the word of God is something every single life needs. Every single one of us needs to study the word of God. Studying the word of God is vital to our growth as Christians. Without studying his words, you will not grow as a believer in Jesus. Studying the word of God is our primary way of knowing him because this is his revelation to us. Yes, we pray. Yes, we take walks in nature or, has, or, or spend quiet time in special places like the beach or some places like that. But studying the word of God, it remains his primary revelation to us. But studying the word of God without a relationship with him won't save you. They studied the word of God, what they had, which was the Old Testament. They knew all the rules but missed the Savior. All of God's word points to Jesus. They knew the scriptures and yet would not come to Jesus. And it's they would not, not that they could not. They were unwilling, unwilling to come to him. They refused the testimony of the one standing right before them. I encourage everyone to study the Bible. But you can't study the Bible for long without being faced with a decision. Embrace Jesus or not. And that decision comes up pretty quickly. And that is what the scriptures teach us. If we, if we fail to see Jesus, we miss the reason the scriptures exist. And that's for us to grow in faith in Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad Jesus will meet you right where you are? Right where you are. You coming to Jesus doesn't have to look like me or anybody else. He meets you right where you are. When he meets some people, it's a real solemn and quiet encounter. When he meets other people, it's loud and noisy. I've known Christians that when they come to Jesus, they sit in a pew and they're quiet, but you can see the look on their face and life has changed. And I've known other Christians who are able to jump two, three, and four pews upon coming to Jesus. I'm so thankful I didn't come to Jesus later in life because jumping pews right now scares my back. But one is not more valid than the other, nor should either be dismissed. When you come to Jesus, he's going to meet you right where you are. And thankfully, he's not going to leave you where you are. He's going to grow you and deepen your knowledge of him as that relationship grows. Jesus said, I don't need to accuse you of any... Uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. The scriptures testify of him. It's not going to look like you. In a lot of my worship, I tend to be rather quiet. It's just how my relationship with the Lord is right now. I don't shout too much anywhere. Even when I umpired baseball, referee, football, I didn't yell a lot. 
people yelled at me, but I didn't do a lot of yelling back. I would just kind of look at you because eventually I was convinced you're yelling at me, you would eventually run out of air and you would stop. And then I could say, coach, go back to your seat and the game can continue. And that's kind of how I resolved the issue. Some of my fellow officials, umpires or referees, they obviously had a spiritual gift of yelling. They knew how to yell and yell back. They knew how to take a 10-second argument and have it go on for 5, 10 minutes. So everyone is different. Everyone's personality is different. Everyone comes to Jesus as themselves, and Jesus accepts them. Aren't you glad for that? So the scriptures testified of Jesus. And the last witness was one that cut deep to the religious leaders, Moses. Verses 45 and 46, but I do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, of whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus says, I don't need to accuse you of anything. Moses is doing that for me. That was one of the highest identifiers for these people. They considered themselves children of Moses. And that's how they were often referred to. No one was more revered in Israel. Of all the great leaders they had had, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, all the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Moses, the one who brought the law, he was how they identified. And basically, Jesus is saying, if you believed Moses, if you really believed him, you'd believe me. That's the witness he was pointing at here. He challenged their claim that was based on heritage. So much of their identity was based on their bloodline. Now, these next couple of points, I'm glad I'm standing behind a barrier in case you wanted to throw something at me. And if you want to think about it and the person think about me later, I'm glad I fly out on Tuesday. <laughs> but God is not concerned with your bloodline. God does not care that you are Italian. God does not care whether you are black or white. God does not care whether or not you're an American or not. God does not care whether or not you're male or female other than your attempts to change it day to day, which we'll talk about that some other time. Do you believe the words he says? That's what God cares about. Do you follow his son? That's what God cares about. Do you embrace his teachings? That's what God cares about. Our greatest identifier is not my gender, is not my biology, is not my nationality, is not my ethnicity, it's not a political party. My greatest identifier is do I believe and follow in Jesus Christ? It will be our Christian faith that identifies us or the lack of it. 
That's my identity. They were gaining pride from being a descendant from a man who'd been dead for a, a few thousand years while rejecting the one he wrote about over and over again and the one he pointed to, and that was Jesus. So I don't know about you. I didn't go to law school. And the more I work with attorneys, I'm glad I didn't. So that's not my calling. But I find, in legal terms, Jesus' case both compelling and convincing. He is guilty of being the Son of God. He is guilty of being the Savior of the world. He is guilty of being the only Redeemer that anyone can ever find in history. He is guilty of being exactly who he said he was. And the witness bears it out. The testimony bears it out. And that testimony today is you and me. Does our testimony bear to his guilt about being the son of God? Does our testimony, our lives bear witness to the truth that he is the almighty one, that he is the savior, and that he is alive and well, still ready to perform miracles and do a work in every heart? There are those we might think they're really far gone. No one is beyond Jesus' reach. If there was anybody who was beyond Jesus' reach, it would have been the Apostle Paul. He was a breather of hate to the church. He was one who, for his work and his zeal, many believers died while he stood there pleased with himself. That is who Saul of Tarsus was. And then Jesus met him on a road, knocked him off a high horse, and met him and said, I've got a work for you to do. And God can do that in anyone's life today because the evidence of that, he's done it in your life and in mine. If you would have told me over 30 years ago that I would be a pastor and a preacher of the gospel, I would have had a few choice words for you. And they wouldn't have been pleasant. I would have tried my best just to simply say, you're nuts. You're crazy. But God. But God, that's the witness that we have, and that's what we need to share. Right now, the testimony is not going to be Moses to many people. It's not going to be them studying the scriptures because they're going to get their own ideas about things. It's going to be you and me pointing a witness to them, studying the scriptures with them so they can see Jesus and find out he is the only way to eternal life. An eternal life that starts here. Eternal life doesn't start when the day I die. It started the day I accepted him. Because he's given me joy. He's given me an abundant life. And he's given me a peace that passes all understanding. Aren't you glad for that peace? Because it's not peaceful out there. It's a mess out there. I know that's such a profound statement. It's an awful mess out there. But in here, he has calmed the storm. He has stretched his hand and said, peace, be still. That's what the witnesses bear out, and that's what we need to do today. Stand with me, please.